Thank you so much. Good morning. We're approaching a weekend, actually a Saturday, that is significant to the Christian community worldwide. That's Reformation Day. And so that passage that we are dealing with this morning is directly tied to what's commemorated in these coming days. I'd love for you to take your Bibles and join with me and We're going to find our way to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verse 2 down through verse 20. And as we do, we're going to spot how all these thoughts historically and also contemporarily 2015 fit together in this passage. As you're finding your way there, a quick review of what we've covered in these past weeks. In the opening verses, we find Habakkuk, and he's looking at the injustices that are all around him. Seems like everything is going wrong in the culture. He looks at the injustices, and it's as if the question he's, being, he's posing to God is, God, do you care? Ever prone to ask God that question? Well, God breaks in with an answer, and then Habakkuk finds out that that answer troubles him. And the answer is such that a second question is delivered by Habakkuk to get God, then is that fair? You're going to use the Babylonians of all people, secularists, to discipline the Jewish people? Now, if you take those two questions, I think those questions pertain to modern-day living. God, do you care? God, is this fair? What our Lord does, then, is to address the critical questions of the soul in ways in which you and I can't fully anticipate. And that's what's happening here now in chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. I'll simply read it down through verse 5, but we're going to use that as the launching pad to consider the rest of the verses in this chapter as well. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. And if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale, like death he has never enough. And he gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. So what we're going to try to do is make sense of these words and see how it relates to 
our own personal lives in 2015. Sleeves rolled up. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And we want to do the work of understanding your word, Father. And we want to do the work of applying your word. What you've done is to reveal yourself to us and to reveal your plan to us. And so what we do in our worship is that we work through your word verse by verse by verse, seeking to understand all the nuances, all the elements, and then finding ways to bridge it into 2015 living. Wrestling with the do you care, God, and is that fear, God? The answers you give in relationship to the way in which we handle our work, our parenting, our relationships, our health. And all of this, Father, we bring before you. Now, if anybody is caught in that tension of the care and fear, unlock these verses for him or her, Father, and allow them to peer in and see exactly what it is you are saying and what exactly it is that you're doing. So in these minutes together, Father, as we look into your word, warm these hearts, engage these minds, Shape these wheels. Come here again to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now. In Jesus' name. Amen. It was an odd way for me to begin my doctoral dissertation. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And I'm sure I had my professors scratching their heads. But then in the very next sentence, noted that 25 years later, this scene appears on the screen. You see, 25 years later, here is Martin Luther, and he is using what today would be social media. He's standing before one of the most renowned bulletin boards in Europe, and he's posting his 95 theses. He's got arguments against the Roman Catholic Church, which, bottom lining it, is teaching salvation by works. And he's perturbed, you see, because there is this particular monk who's going around raising dollars. And as he's raising dollars to support the building project of the Catholic Church, he, in essence, is offering in turn the promise that sins will be forgiven by what they offer in terms of their dollars and cents. What's the connection between 1492 and 1517, 25 years? Their version of social media, Luther now is tacking this document, 95 Thesis, upon this bulletin board. What fascinates me is that when God is producing change, geographically, 
politically, watch out. Most likely he is also producing change spiritually. We're all of a sudden, and it seems as though the earth is shaking. You don't quite know why, but change is in the works, and God is breaking in. And as Luther hammered to that door that's commemorated this coming Saturday, his 95 Theses, what prompted his thinking were these words, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. And you read Habakkuk 2 verse 4, and it seized your attention, but the righteous shall live by his faith. What I want to do is to lay out before us this morning Polar opposites, a dramatic contrast between what God describes as the righteous and the ones that God describes as the unrighteous, for you and me to force ourselves to ask serious questions. Which camp am I in? To get us started, bear in mind that Habakkuk has said, In response to my questions, God, do you care? God, really, is this fair? What Habakkuk does for you and for me is that he has set for us an example in verse 1. He had said, okay, don't have all my answers, so I will take my stand at my watch post like a soldier in the midst of the night. He's going to be surveying the landscape to see what's going to happen. Station myself on the tower. Look out to see what he will say to me. The very same verbs which were used to describe Peter and John as they looked in and saw Jesus was absent from that tomb. And what I will answer concerning my complaints, and so if you got some complaints for God this morning, in the, do you care? And really, God, is this fair? Let's check it out. Notice, first of all, the whole idea of the camp of the righteous. And how does Habakkuk describe these people? Appears on the screen. The righteous shall live by his faith. And you see it particularly in verse 4, but we're going to develop it in verse 2 through verse 5. Now, here is Habakkuk, and he has been communing with God. He looks around, he sees what's happening in Jerusalem and the outskirts, and he sees crime, he sees violence, he sees upheaval, he doesn't like the current events, and maybe you'll like that as well. And so, prayerfully, he goes to what I call first things, the true starting point. God, God, do you care in the midst of this injustice? And God will answer. And God will answer in such a way that he's not fond of the answer. Have you ever had that happen with God and you? 
And so he's now got a second question he posed to God. Okay, you care, but really, God, is this fair? Because God's using now the Babylonians, what the passage calls the Chaldeans, to discipline the Jewish people because of the injustices in the land of Israel, Judah. So now God answers him with a capital L-O-R-D in verse 2. And he says to Habakkuk, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. And immediately Habakkuk is saying, oh boy, what God is doing at this point is he's connecting me to the scriptures because that is the very same Hebrew word used to describe what Moses wrote upon pertaining to the Ten Commandments that God had delivered. And you can read about it, particularly in Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. So what God's doing now is he's, he is pushing Habakkuk into the Word, which is we are driven to do on these Sundays together and through the course of the week. He's pushing him into the Word. So when you're dealing with these critical questions, God, do you care? And those around me at work are asking the same thing. Marriages falling apart, health breaking down. And God, is this fair when you tell me just how you go about disciplining people? What he does now, God, is that he brings Habakkuk right to the word. And now Habakkuk's got to deal with that one word, tablets, and ponder the very same example that God had given via Moses. Okay, God, I'm listening to your word. And then he adds this. So he may run who reads it. In other words, as Habakkuk writes down God's word, he wants his readers to run with it. You ever use that phrase at work? I, I heard it on a Sunday night football just a few weeks ago about a particular running back. It seemed as though the quarterback just wasn't coming through and hitting his wide receivers. And so the commentator said, just give it to the, the back and let him run with it. He knows where to go. Now what you and I have got to do is to realize that God, in essence, has given us his word We've got to run with it in the midst of the chaos of life. 1981, Chariots of Fire, the movie. It's a fascinating thing. The music is still heard even today in commercials and so on. But what fascinates me about that particular movie is that there was a contrast there as well between Harold Abram, brilliant runner, a secular unbeliever, a Jew. And Eric Little, a Scotsman, a Gentile, born again. And Eric Little has just put on a performance for others to see his skill in running. He won the 400 meters in the Olympics of 1924. Eric Little, talking to the crowd, says, I made I believe God made me for a purpose. He made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. 
You came to see a race today. You came to see someone run, someone win. It happened to be me this time. But I want you to do more than just watch the race. This is brilliant. I want you to run. I want you to take part in it. I want to compare faith to running in a race. It's hard. It requires concentration of will, energy of soul. You experience elation when the winner breaks the tape. But how long does that last? You go home. Eat dinner. Who am I to say, believe, have faith in the face of life's realities? But I would like to give you something more permanent. Where does the power come from to run the race to its end? From within. Jesus said, behold, the kingdom of God is within you. If with all your hearts you truly seek me, you shall ever surely find me. If you commit yourself, little said, to the love of Christ, then that is how you run a straight race. Here old Abrams, an unbeliever, talking to his coach. I'm forever in pursuit forever running, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. The contrast in that movie is the contrast in this world. Either you are running with the Scriptures or you're running away from God. The righteous run for God. The unrighteous run from God. And Habakkuk sees the world on the run. And he's struggling with what he sees in the population around him. And the Lord says to him, write the vision. Make it plain so that people are biblically aware. Tablets so that he may run with it, so he may run who reads it. And then then God adds this. In verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. God is still using the runner's imagery here because the word hastens in verse 3 carries with the idea of to gasp toward the end. And then something that you and I can relate to. If it seems slow, wait for it. It'll surely come. It will not delay. Does God ever seem slow? Are you willing to wait for it? God says this to Habakkuk. And God says this to you and me. I winced in pain as I looked at my bloodied knuckles, Ben Patterson in his book, Waiting Rights. 
In a rage, I had slammed my fist into the dashboard of my car as I drove home from our last date together. Five years. I screamed into the headlining of the automobile. That's how long I had dated her, waiting, hoping that one day we'd be married. Now it's over. Nothing was working. I felt like God had reneged on the contract. I'd been a faithful Christian, good student, hard worker, upstanding, moral, sincere, loved her long will, but none of that got me the girl my dreams, kept all the rules, held up my end of the bargain. Why hadn't he? I had waited for so long. And now I'd have to wait some more. Is that you this morning? I have waited so long. And now I have to wait some more. So now God is telling you and me, look carefully at my words. Because in verse 3, it does not say, if it is slow, wait for it. No. He says, if it seems slow, wait for it. Notice the wording and how it relates to you and how it relates to me. Not everything that seems slow is slow. We've got to deal with the is of God's plan. Even when God's plan seems slow. Because God is saying with all certainty it will surely come. It will not delay this intervention that he's describing here at this point. So you take a deep breath. And you look what comes next. He continues to set up the contrast between the religious and the secular unbeliever, the unrighteous, and that with the righteous. Behold his soul, this unrighteous one, is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But, and if you love Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you underline what comes next, because I'm sure Luther did. The righteous shall live by his faith. And that's why he could pen night and day. I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. And when you grasp that phrase and you break down that phrase, you can see how it relates to your life and to mine. Take that word, the righteous. You and I do not achieve righteousness before God. We do not come into this world inherently righteous before God. The word righteous was a legal term, describing one in the court where someone is guilty but then declared righteous. Not declared innocent, I am still a sinner, but declared righteous in the courts in this case of the heavens. What you and I do is you and I are called to put our faith and trust in the one who is righteous. We are not. 
And as we have put our faith and trust in the one who is righteous, we are not. We are legally declared righteous, even though we are still sinners. Not declared innocent, declared righteous. It is a legal term. You are legally secure before God because of the finished work of Christ Jesus, your substitute on that cross, if you have put your faith and trust not in yourself, but in your Savior. The just shall live, you see, by his faith. And the his, or if you're a lady of her, tells you just how personal this faith is. You can't inherit the prior generation's faith. Don't borrow someone else's faith. You've entered into the courtroom of life. You've admitted you are a sinner, but you have put your faith and your trust not in self, but in the one who died in your place. You are not declared innocent. You and I know better than that. But you are declared righteous. And that's the legal term. And that's what drove Luther at this point to be able to do what now appears on the screen. He was able to stand before a council. They were putting his writings, in fact, putting his beliefs on trial in 1521. And they wanted him to just simply recant, turn back, give up, and go back to an argument of salvation on the basis of works rather than grace, an achievement of righteousness rather than the biblical wording, a declaration of righteousness. But then on that day, at April 18th, 6 p.m., he delivers his answer that you are now looking at. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I trust neither Pope nor Council alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have cited. For my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant, since to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor right. I can do no otherwise. Here, I stand. May God help me. And Habakkuk in chapter 2 verse 1 said, I will take my stand. Have you? Even when you don't have answers to all the riddles and all the questions you have, about why you're going through what you're going through. Are you willing to take your stand? When sometimes the question is, do you care? And really, God, is it fair? Waiting.
If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, verse 4. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith, which people around the globe will ponder if they have a sense of the historical significance of this coming Saturday. Check out Genesis 15. Because in verse 5 and verse 6, Habakkuk now, as he is hearing God tell him that the righteous, the ones who are declared righteous, this kind of individual here shall live by his faith. He got that from somewhere. And he got it from God's word. And what you and I do is we continue to examine God's word. And he got it from a scene where someone else had to wait. And this person would be declared righteous. It's Abraham, and he's been waiting and waiting and waiting for God to deliver on the promise. And he brought him outside, God did, and said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And you know what? That word for offspring is the Hebrew word seed. The very same word that God used in his promise of Messiah in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The word offspring is seed. And there will come this time in the future when Mary's womb is seeded. And Messiah comes into this world. And an Abraham has got to put his faith and trust in the seed, that promised seed, the one you and I call Jesus. The Apostle Paul understood this as well. Check out Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and the lead in, in verse 16 that appears on the screen now. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first. Even you, Harold, Abram, the Greek, the Gentile, you, Eric Little, and here it comes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous, the ones who are declared righteous, not the ones who supposedly have achieved righteousness, shall live by faith. It is by faith. It is not by works that you and I are saved. Donald Gray Barnhouse understood that. Commentary at Romans tells the following story of a pastor by the name of W.R. Newell. Years ago in the city of St. Louis, I, Newell, was holding noon meetings in the Century Theater, and I was speaking about the whole idea of being justified by faith. Quote, To him that worketh not, but believeth in him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is reckoned unto him for righteousness. Unquote taken from Romans 4, 5. After the audience had gone, I was, I was addressed by a fine-looking man of middle age. He identified himself. I am Captain G, a man known in the city. And when I sat down to talk with him, he began, you're speaking to the most ungodly man in St. Louis. And I said, well, praise God. And the man looked at me and said, what? 
Do you mean you're glad that I'm bad? No, I said. But I'm certainly glad to find a sinner who knows he's a sinner. Uh, You don't know half of it. I have been absolutely ungodly for years and years and years. I just I could hardly get him quiet enough to ask him, didn't you hear me explain what it means to be declared righteous? Mr. Newell, he said, I've been coming to these noon meetings for six weeks. I do not think I've missed the meeting, but I cannot tell you a word of what you said today. I didn't sleep last night, couldn't. I've hardly had any sleep for three weeks. I've gone to one man after another to find out what I should do and what I do, and I do what they say, and I have read the Bible, I've prayed, I've given money away, but I'm still the most wretched person in this town. Now, what do you tell me to do? I've been waiting. I waited here today to ask you that. I've tried everything in life. Now, Mr. Newell broke in. Let's turn to the verse I taught on. I gave the Bible to his hands, asking him to read aloud. The phrase in the King James, to him that worketh not. But, he said, how can this be for me? I'm the most ungodly man around. Wait, I said, read on. So he read, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. There, he fairly shouted, that's what I am, ungodly. And this verse is for you, I said. But Mr. Newell, tell me what to do. I know I'm ungodly, what shall I do? And I said, read it again. And he read it again. To him that worketh not. And I stopped him. There I said, the verse says not to do. And you want me to tell you what to do. I can't do that. But there must be something to do, he said. Otherwise, I'll be lost forever. There was something to do, I replied. But it has been done. Pause. The unrighteous are focused upon the D.O. The declared righteous are focused upon the D.O.N.E. Two letters make all the difference, you know. And then I told him that God had so loved him, all ungodly as he was, that he sent Christ to die for the ungodly, and that God's judgment had fallen on Christ, who had been forsaken of God for his Captain G's sins there on the cross. And then I said, God raised up Christ, told us to communicate the gospel, all ungodly as we are, to believe on this God who declares righteous the ungodly on the ground of Christ's shed blood. And suddenly he leaped to his feet, stretched out his hand to me. Mr. Newell, he said, I will accept that proposition. And off he went, without another word. But off he went to share God's word. You see, 
Now, what I'm saying is this. The righteous have grasped the idea of the deal and E. We cannot achieve righteousness through our D-O-N-E. We have to accept the fact that God has sent Christ Jesus in this world to perform the D-O-N-E. And we are declared righteous, though we're still sinners. But the unrighteous are caught up in the D-O. And like a herald Abrams, they are continuously running and running and running. But in reality, that camp is running from God, while the righteous are running for God, you see. Now, which is you? Whether it's Genesis chapter 15, 5 and 6, or Romans 1 verse 17, It all converges here. And what Habakkuk is saying in the midst of the chaos of life where some are asking, do you care? And others are wrestling with, but is this fair? And now God says, but the righteous, in the midst of all this, the declared righteous shall live by, and it gets personal here, his faith is personal for you this morning. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus. He's setting up a contrast. Some are running from, others are running for. The ones who run for the righteous shall live by his faith. But here's the opposite end of the spectrum. The unrighteous. How do you describe the unrighteous? It appears on the screen because it appears in your scriptures. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Look at verse 4 very carefully and notice here the contrast. It's all there. The whole world is there in verse 4. The unrighteous, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. The declared righteous, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And there you've got the entire world scenario right in one verse. It's astounding. But what I want you to notice is that we've italicized the word upright. Because for the one who comes into this world and not having put faith and trust in Jesus, Messiah, his soul is not upright. And before I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, my soul was not upright, and it's got the R-I-G-H-T in the phrase upright, in contrast to the word righteousness, which has the R-I-G-H-T in it as well. So what he's saying is that there's a twisted, crooked view of righteousness in the mind of the individual who's attempting to be upright, but simply cannot be and is not upright. And so how how is Habakkuk to understand this? Well, you've got to understand his contemporary situation. He's not looking at this invading force known as the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who are being led by Nebuchadnezzar, who are invading Judah and the temple. And the unrighteous ones here are bearing in now upon the city of Judah, Jerusalem, 
and they're about to take captive Ezekiel and Daniel and the likes, as well as many of the articles from the temple. Are you there? Do you care? Is this fair? So what God now does, and you've got to understand the situation that Habakkuk is facing, is that he now deals with the judgment of the unrighteous. And in the case of the Babylonians here, the best way to summarize it is that God delivers five significant woes, W-O-E-S, to tell them where all this is headed if they do not put faith and trust in Messiah. The first woe, the woe of greed. Greed is symptomatic of their unbelief. Verse 6 through 8. Woe to him and the heart of it who heaps up what is not his own. How long? The very same question that Habakkuk posed in chapter 1 verse 2. And loads himself with pledges, pledges as if that's their way of being able to cope with the confusion and chaos of this world. Is that your coping mechanism? A second woe. Verses 9 through 11. The woe of covetousness. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, who t- to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. If only I build a fortress around me to secure me from all the chaos of this world, he's saying. And Nebuchadnezzar tried to do that. And God broke in. The third woe, the woe of exploitation in verse 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, which was exactly what Nebuchadnezzar would have to deal with when God struck him into temporary insanity. He would have to look up and realize he's not God. God is God. God is sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar is not. And likewise, in this fallen world, we've got to bring bear upon the whole issue of the fact that the heart that is opposed to God's will is bringing a woe upon himself or herself. A fourth woe, the woe of violence. In 15, 16, 17, woe to him in 15, who makes his neighbors drink, you pour out your wrath, make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you. And as the Babylonians during that time period where Belshazzar had them toasting the gods of Babylon, God broke in with the writing upon the wall, and lo and behold, again, God's word speaks to the heart of the person who is opposed to God's will. And that is what Habakkuk here is not only predicting, but prophesying. And he's saying now to these Jewish people, this is a short time where you are being disciplined by God. And God sometimes will use unholy instruments to achieve his holy goals, like he chose to use a Pilate or Herod to put Jesus on the cross so that you and I could be declared righteous on the basis of Christ's work, not ours. But then there's one final woe. 
18 through 20. We're in the heart of it in 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise, can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. He's predicting the time when the Babylonians will be toasting their false gods with the utensils from the temple that they thought they had conquered. And now God has something to say about that temple. In verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple, not was. Let all the earth Keep silence before him. And now in this one chapter, you have seen both grace and justice operative. All tied to that one particular word. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, the unrighteous. But the righteous shall live by faith, the declared righteous. And now the question you and I have to answer is, And which camp am I in? Because on that October day, night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. So the question is, are you seeking salvation on the basis of your works? or on the basis of Christ's work. We cannot achieve righteousness, but we can be declared righteous when we've put our faith and trust in our substitute, the one who died, so that we might live. Let's stand together. Now, Father, speak to that heart. Maybe he or she came in here, a secular unbeliever, hasn't really grappled with your word verse by verse before. But your word is speaking to their heart. My prayer is that at this moment they will put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus for their salvation. For that religious unbeliever who's gone through all the denominational hoops and all the religious ceremonies and still knows something's missing. There is an absence in my soul that needs to be filled. I pray he or she now will put faith and trust exclusively in Christ. declared righteous in the courts of heavens. You tell the believer, run with it. Take the truth and run with it. We're gathered to be scattered. We're called to make disciples of others. So I pray now we'll take your word, run with it, and share the pivotal truth of verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith and communicate this in a way in which people will embrace the good news that Jesus died for their sins. This speaks to all of us. So, Father, may it now penetrate our hearts, so change our lives that we run for you in a world that runs from you. And we run for you, for your glory alone. In Jesus' name.
Amen. God bless you.